We are starting now Conversations with Yogananda. We're at the very last part of the book. We're on number 389. Now this is a long reading all about the caste, which is very interesting. The master deplored the racial prejudice he found in certain sections of the country as well as elsewhere in the world. I don't see why they talk about white and black races, he said with a chuckle. Without their skin, they are all red. (laughs) In ourselves, similarly, we're all one. Master's advice to the monks at one point when they... He said, if you see a beautiful woman and you feel attracted to her, imagine her without her skin. He said, she won't look quite as nice to you then. (laughs) I always think that's such a beautiful image. Master was so just blunt. So without our skin, we're all red. So what does it matter? Master goes on to say, the actual races of man, if we choose to think of them as such, have nothing to do in any case with skin coloring. They are the four fundamental stages displayed by mankind in its spiritual refinement. In India, that was what was originally um, signified by the caste system. Now, the caste system, as Master explains lightly here, but only a little, gradually became, as Kali Yuga descended, it gradually solidified into a social system, primarily a social system in which the higher castes got to oppress the lower caste. So one really has to, to understand this whole section. You have to just shift your mind out of everything that you think that caste means. It's sort of like when um, they work with the Bible or ancient languages. You go back to words that meant something very different at the time, and then everything begins to make sense. So you have to put out of your mind what you think of as the caste system. And also, Masters now, he's really talking about stages of spiritual development. And once again, these kinds of conversations can be used in a prejudicial way to describe people as um, less worthy or less worthy in the eyes of God. But the fact of the matter is, self-realization is progressive. And we have completely self-realized masters. Therefore, you have people at different stage of progress on the spiritual path. And I'm emphasizing these things because in our sort of zealous egalitarianism sometimes, a little common sense um, is needed in order to make it sensible. And also to be able to tell the difference between somebody's divine essence and all being equally a channel of God and and an individual's capacity to manifest that perfection. See, what we're talking about is not the inherent presence of that perfection but each individual's ability to manifest that perfection. And clearly, when you look around, you see that people vary enormously in their ability to manifest that perfection. And what, what he's going to go on to describe here is, in the, in the true expression of the caste system, in an enlightened age, where individuals were able to find the, the appropriate place for them to grow spiritually. Instead of just everybody being lumped together, it was, well, you will grow better doing this kind of work in this kind of an atmosphere, and you will grow better here. And it was all done uh, for the sake of the individual's upliftment, not for the sake of oppressing the individual. So the whole orientation has to change. So now Master's talking about it. At his lowest level of refinement, man thinks, thinks not only of but with his physical body. That's an interesting comment that he makes. 
He doesn't think only of his body, but he thinks with it. And what he means by that is that he can only understand the world in terms of what he can touch and feel. So if you, if you talk to a person of this caste about subtle principles, about um, refined levels of consciousness that are non-material, there's no, he just doesn't know how to think about it because this is what you see, this is what you are, this is what you get. And he, he can't even comprehend how you, would, how, how you would relate to the world abstractly. So he, he, it needs to come through his senses. He needs to be able to feel it. So it's not only he thinks of his body, but with his physical body. I was really, I loved that sentence when I read it. Tradition typifies him as a farm laborer, though of course that is simplistic. Such a person belongs to the Shudra caste. A farm laborer, usually what I have heard it more as a peasant, but it's just somebody who goes out, works with the soil, makes things grow, picks up the crops, carries them to the market, gets his money, brings it home. You see, it's all very concrete. I myself, um, being more uh, it, uh, living in my mind, when I, st- and I would always have jobs that were abstract, more, the only way I can put it, but I also got to cook. And I just absolutely loved cooking, and I still do but I don't do it like I used to. But I loved cooking because it was so concrete. And in a real sense, it was like it was thinking of and with the physical body. You cook it. You know, it's a physical thing to cook it. You bring it out to the table. People eat it. You wash the dishes and it's done. There's just no, it never goes into those diaphanous realms that you can't see. When you're a writer, as I have been more recently, you know, you're alone in your room and you're typing words into your computer you don't even have any paper. And then they go to a printer and they finally turn into a book and then people read them and their minds are changed. I mean, where? how do you hold it in your hand? When you cook, it's in your hand. When you're a farm laborer digging in the earth, you've got it. So as Swami, as Master says here, it's an oversimplification, but it gives you the idea. Um, those are the shudras. And such people need to work with their physical bodies. If they don't work with their physical bodies, they, they don't know what to do. You can't, and the, a lot of the problem in our schools and so on is that everything has become intellectual and people who are physically oriented, who are shudras, don't function on that level. They need, they need to, to work with their hands. And they can be quite skilled with their hands, but they get quite confused when they're supposed to just think with their minds. So when a person begins to use his intellect, he first does so strictly for personal gain, thinking always, what's in this for me? (laughs) The obvious example of such a person is the greedy merchant. Again, this is simplistic, for by no means are all merchants greedy. Many of them are very generous. This sort of person, in any case, belongs to what is known as the Vaisha class. So what happens with the Shudra is he begins to realize that if he puts out a little more energy, he can make a little more happen. And then it becomes, that becomes an abstract idea and he begins to think things through that, hey, if I did it like this, I could have that result. And the first motivation for a Shudra is how can I have that result? Um, a friend of mine, when we were in India, she had, she had heard me say that before we get liberated, I'm quoting Master, but she'd heard me quote Master, before we get liberated, we have to have gone through every experience that you can go through. 
And if, you, if, if you're not attracted to something, it's because you've lived through it. I mean, it's a, an overwhelming idea, which, which I can speak more of in a moment. But we were traveling in India. We were on pilgrimage. She was an American woman from a very comfortable... She, she, her husband was well-to-do, and she had a beautiful home, and she was a very creative person. And we were in Orissa, which is not a very um, wealthy area. We were in a poor area. We would have been on our way probably to Sri Yukteswar's ashram in Puri. And we stopped by the roadside in a little sort of area where we could get out of the car and use the bathroom. And there was, on the, on the side of the road, there were these uh, shudras, <laughs> or maybe early vaishas, with these carts where they were selling peanuts in the shell. And being careful about Americans not getting sick, peanuts in the shell was one of the things we could eat. Off the, off the street. So the, uh, the peanut sellers had old newspapers that they rolled into cones and then they would scoop some peanuts in and they would sell them to us. And they had these little push carts that they pushed out by the side of the road and it would be like a little table on wheels. And I, I don't think I can do it anymore, but the, the guy who sold the peanuts pulled his knees up and sat there just perched on his thing with his elbows on his knees in that sort of Indian crouch. I used to be able to demonstrate it. I don't think I can do it now. And then Indian crouch, and he would sit there. The tour bus would stop, and we'd all get off. And we weren't the only tour bus. And he would roll his newspapers and hand us these peanut things. So I get back on the bus, and this woman is really intense. She was very intense. Asha, before I die, do I have to be a peanut seller in Orissa? She said like that. (laughs) And I said, well... First, let me think about it. I said, if you were a peanut seller in Orissa, the first thing you would do is you would get a pretty little tablecloth for your table. The next thing you would do is that you would paint all those newspapers pretty colors. Then you would probably organize all the peanut sellers, you know, so that you could all work together so you could have, all have pretty baskets and you'd have them all lined up and then you get them all little outfits. You know, it's like, no, you don't have to be a peanut seller because as soon as you sat down there, you would start operating from a wholly different level of consciousness. But that peanut seller just sat there and just waited for us to come. Not because he was a bad person, but that was simply the limit of what he could see. And he was, whoever he was, was industrious enough to have gotten out of the fields and onto a peanut cart. So he's moving you know, from just being a physical laborer. The idea of selling peanuts is a step above, perhaps, just digging in the dirt and harvesting them. But you see how it progresses. But once you have a certain reality going in your mind, like my friend did, you know, she, she could just, she couldn't sit there. She would be compelled by her own nature to, to do more. And she would either, I mean, a, a Vaisha would be compelled to use his creativity merely to get more money. You know, hey, if I, uh, you know, if I use smaller cones, I can just have a few more peanuts and a few less peanuts in each one, but the tourists won't notice, and so I'll get the same amount of money for fewer peanuts. I mean, that's a creative thought. And for someone who was a shudra, who's coming to be a vaisha, to learn how to be just a little bit more shrewd as a vaisha is up, right? But for my friend, if she was a vaisha and was trying to cheat people or to skimp them a little bit, but she wouldn't think that way. She would start thinking like a kshatriya because that's who she is. And so I'll tell that one next. So when one develops further in spiritual refinement, 
He inclines to use his intelligence for the general good. That's how Master puts it. So my friend was already beyond being a Vaisha. She wouldn't just think what she could get for herself. She would think more and better peanuts for more people. You know, that would just be, that would be the natural way she'd think about it. Better working conditions for peanut sellers. Just what can I do that's creative and be the willingness to put out energy even when there's nothing in it for you. Rather than, okay, he, he inclines to use his intelligence for the general good rather than only for his own benefit. Such a person is typified as the soldier, not the marauding sort, but one who readily sacrifices his own life, if need be, for the sake of others. Such a person belongs to the Kshatriya class. And of course, you know, that's a, the, the soldier is, you have to think of it not as a violent person, but as a disciplined, self-sacrificing person. I mean, the, the ideal of a soldier is actually really very inspiring. The reality of it sometimes is and sometimes isn't. But, you know, it's a very disciplined life. It's a very austere life. Um, you're separated from home. You're separated from family. And, and in certain circumstances, you won't come back. You'll, your life will just be taken away from you. But if you really are going for a righteous cause, it, you, you want to do it. It's, if I can give up my life for the sake of their security, that's a meaningful gesture to me. When a, a friend of mine who was working uh, it was, it was working in a general sense. I can't remember what the project was, but it was, a, it was for peace. And I, in, in one way or another, whatever the project was, I didn't, I didn't feel to be part of it. But he was quite surprised when I, was, I wasn't categorically and obviously, you know, anti-military or anti-soldier. And I had to explain to him, you know, for a lot of people coming up, you know, I've, they've been a Vaisha, they've done, only done it for themselves, and all of a sudden it occurs to them that self-sacrifice would be more satisfying than self-indulgence. And so there's a place in the world for that. Whether it actually manifests as soldiers depends on how high the age is. But you know, in, in, in Master's incarnation is William and his Master's incarnation as Ferdinand III, and Ferdinand III, he spent his entire life at war. His, his just from early manhood, which was younger, you know, in his teens, virtually until his death, he was always at war. That's all he did. And he had all his disciples with him. He had all of us with him, or we, perhaps we were with his son, Alfonso. But it was his people, and he was taking them out there and having them slaughter the Moors, you know, just one after the other. And so it's sort of like your mind kind of, that's not how you think of a spiritual pe- person behaving, but it was a necessary cosmic moment in which individuals had to sacrifice themselves for the greater good rather than for their own selves. And, and you know, a brave soldier, and as, as Fernando, it's really very interesting, he, he, I think he was never touched. He, was, he rode at the front of his men in battle after battle, and I don't believe he was ever even wounded. I'm pretty sure that that's the truth of that. But it was just phenomenal. He just, you can sort of, you know, when I was reading a history book about him, I don't really even remember. I, I got some biography of it. And it, actually it was, it was tiresome because, and then he rode out with his men to this encounter and then he fought how many thousands and then he won again and then he went back and then he rode out with his men. I mean, it, just, it was just battle after battle. And some of them were actually quite 
Um, there were miraculous things that happened. Visions of the Virgin Mary. I believe Fernando had a little statue of the Virgin Mary that he kept on his saddle, if I'm not mistaken. But you can just see how fearlessly and how powerfully such a, such a being, you know, a self-realized master in the role of a soldier, what would he have to fear? Nothing. And you could just see also how the men would just rush in behind him. He would give them a kind of courage. But the fact of the matter is they were killing people. That's what they were doing. That's what war is. It wasn't just a parade or something like that. But it's very noble if, it's, if, if you're a true kshatriya. You know, the, it, what you're sacrificing yourself for is principle. And of course, the higher level of a kshatriya is not that you're a soldier. Master didn't say it here, but in other places he said it. It's the soldier king. And the king then has to be understood too. Because as Swamiji said, people think that the king has all the freedom, but the king is the servant of everyone he rules. His entire life has to be given over to their welfare. Now, of course, mostly we have shudra and vaishas in positions of leadership right now, which is what's wrong with the whole world. Is they're either so dull that they can't think beyond, I want that, you know, I want this, I want that. You know, I want give it to me in my hands. I want money. I want power. I want this, or they're they're vaisha, where the only energy they put out is for what they can get. But the the proper rulers are kshatriyas, and sometimes you do get soldiers in the role of of uh, political leaders, and sometimes they're better because at least they have the concept in mind that my life is is one of discipline, self sacrifice. But but when we think of this in terms of people like us for whom going to war, unless our guru takes us there, which I hope he doesn't ever again, um, it's really not for us. It's, we're, we're, just, we're just past that. We just don't have to do that anymore. But we have to live a life of discipline, self-sacrifice, for the sake of principle. Because we are kshatriyas, and our principle is self-realization, our principle is the yamas and the niyamas, our principle is master's work. I mean, our principle could be many different things, but we, are, we live a life of discipline, self-sacrifice for the sake of the principles. You know, and all of us could have been many other things. And I remember at a certain point when we were building this work here, I thought to myself, well, if we worked this hard for ourselves, we would be so rich. <laughs> it just crossed my mind. Not that I wanted to be rich at all, but it just like, you know, this kind of effort brings great wealth if you direct it towards yourself this kind of creative, unrelenting output of energy. But we're not vaishas. We did it for the general good. We didn't do it for what we could get for ourselves. We were sacrificing for a principle. And then all of your actions, you, every, every question is one of principle. But you could see a, shu, a, a shudra who thinks only with his body, how can you even talk to the shudra about principle? Or the vaisha who thinks only of self-interest. This is where... Many people who are trying to do, um, you know, a social conscious change, trying to change the world outwardly, they get very confused. As Swamiji remarked about President Obama, and the context was some talk he gave in the, about, in the Middle East, about the Middle East. And, and Swamiji said it was a very intelligent talk, you know, it was very well thought out. He's a very well-meaning man. He doesn't have any understanding of human nature. You know, he just thinks that if he just can present these reasoned ideas, that people will listen to him. He doesn't take into account 
that when you're talking to Shudras and you're talking to Vaishyas, you can't talk to them in terms of principle because principle doesn't even exist for them. Or you say to the, um, the uh, you know, the, the pesticide salesman, you know, if you sell those pesticides, the, the ducks are going to die. And he says, well, if I didn't sell it, somebody else would. I mean, it's just like he doesn't see the ducks. He just sees his own position. It, it doesn't make any sense. So that's, that's one application. I'll go back to it in a moment. Finally, when the individual evolves spiritually to the point where he wants only God, his, he is like idealized, idealized images of a priest. Such a person belongs to the Brahmin caste. So once you, once you advance past the yamas and the niyamas to the point where, which is, which is the rules of right behavior, to the point where you don't have to discipline yourself because your consciousness has become one of perception of God and that therefore all that you do is to act to please God and, and, and that attunement guides all your behavior. And that's what a Brahmin really is. It's not a Brahmin who necessarily stands on the altar on Sunday. A Brahmin is that perception. That's what I gradually learned about Swamiji because I'm, you know, I'm a Vaishya Kshatriya with occasional streaks of Shudra. <laughs> But Swami was really a Brahmin. He was a Brahmin in this sense, which is what I, I learned about him only gradually. I disciplined myself for the ideals. Swami acted without any... It's sort of hard to explain, but he, in a, in a, what I want to say is there was no filter. Swamiji just acted because his perception was always centered on Master's guidance and the presence of God, and he just simply did what flowed through him. And he often himself didn't even know what, where it was leading. You know, I need a song for the, that represents all of humanity in one melody. So he walks over to the piano and there it is. I need a song for the life of St. Francis. He goes to the piano and there it is. I need a book about communities and I have five days to write it. So he sits down and he writes it. It's that there's no um, effort, discipline, intervening. It's just... And in other ways, um, I, I mentioned, I have mentioned this before, when I got old enough to realize that a 20-year difference in people's life experience can make people behave very differently. And when I began to work with people who were 20 years younger than me, I saw Swamiji working with me in the same relationship, and I realized how differently he, he had, how how respectfully he had always worked with me, that he never made reference to my age or lack of experience, even though callow youth is a very accurate description of me. And I, when I thanked him for that, commented to him, I said, I'm, I'm so grateful you were so... You, you never made reference to my age or my lack of experience, but to my age is what I said. And he, he knew that I was sincere, so he accepted it sincerely, but I could, I could tell by the nuance of, I just could feel it, that somehow I was missing the point. And so then after he said that, he said, I never noticed. I never see people according to the age of their body. He said, I just see their eyes and I see their consciousness. And their eyes shine out from a six-year-old or a 60-year-old, but it's the, it's the soul that's shining, physical age. Who knows, you could have been a highly advanced yogi and now you're four, 
but you're still a highly advanced yogi. You're just four. That's what happens. And that's when that was the, one of the most dramatic ones where I realized I disciplined myself to the principle that we're all the same and that if somebody is younger than me, I have to treat them in a certain way because it's the right way to treat them. He doesn't have to discipline himself. He just spontaneously responds that way. And that's the shift from a kshatriya to a brahmin. And the way you get there is by being a really good kshatriya until you're no longer tempted. You know, it just doesn't cross your mind to want to do it anymore. Just like, I mean, there's lots of things that doesn't cross our mind to want to do. I was talking to a friend about drinking. And when I went once to visit some relatives, relatives of relatives, people I didn't know very well, I just was in the house and we were just doing whatever and I opened the refrigerator and at that point near beer was around a lot. They'd just begun, I think I was still living at Ananda Village. Near beer had just arrived and it was in the market there. Actually, Swami told us not to sell it. His word was, it's too near beer. (laughs) I don't know if they've forgotten that now, but he, he said we shouldn't have it there. But anyway, I was accustomed to that. So I went in the refrigerator and I opened a bottle and I was just sitting watching television or something. I don't know what the family was doing. Maybe it was a football game. And I was just sipping it, and I kept thinking to myself, wow, this is really good. This is so much better than any I've ever had before. I drank about half the bottle, and then it was so good I wanted to know so I could buy some. And of course, it was real beer. It wasn't near beer. (laughs) And that's why it tasted so different and so good. (laughs) But anyway, but it was like, I was, I, I, I don't want to be naive, but I was shocked people I know that I'm actually staying here have beer in their refrigerator? You know, it's just like I didn't, I had no place in my consciousness to put that. Just absolutely none. And I certainly didn't want to have any part of it. I mean, I I didn't pick up my bags and leave because that wasn't appropriate. But, and I went to another friend's uh, acquaintance's house, I would put it more. You know, and there was, again, there was like wine in the refrigerator. I just, I was, I was startled. And that's crazy in in the normal culture, but not at all once you start moving through these realities. And there's many other things that you'll see people do that you just wouldn't do. You know, just white lies, a little bit of stealing, shifting it so it looks a little better for you, cutting the corners. You just you know just wouldn't do it. I had this experience. This, this went on. This was this was like a twenty year one. Many years ago, I was in San Francisco. It was winter. We were doing something with Swamiji. We were walking down a very crowded sidewalk on San Francisco and there was a pair of black fur-lined gloves, leather gloves. And I picked them up. And I took them because I found them. And I had them for years and I rarely wore them. Every time I tried to wear them, I never felt comfortable wearing them. I just had them there. And then, like, just a few years ago, I, had, I have this electric bike that was a gift to me and then I ride it. And for a while I tried to ride it through the winter so I was accumulating really cold weather gear. So I bought a fairly expensive pair of like motorcycle gloves because your hands get really cold. And it was here and I had those gloves. And somehow or another it got, I woke, came in the morning with the gloves and I drove home in the afternoon and it wasn't, rode home in the afternoon and it wasn't so cold. So I had them in the back of my a basket and I think I actually something happened and the basket spilled and I picked everything up and 
or maybe I didn't, I'm not quite sure it happened, but somehow I discovered that I only had one glove. And I wasn't very far away as the basket had spilled, and I wasn't very far away from where the basket had spilled. I drove back and forth and back and forth. I could not for anything find that glove, and I never did find that glove. And in that moment, I realized that I had picked up those gloves off the street of San Francisco, and they weren't mine. And I had kept them all those years. And I really, honestly, you can say I'm making it up, but I really felt like the karma just came right back to me. You stole a pair of gloves, now you're going to lose a pair of gloves. It's just as simple as that. And interestingly, the presence of those gloves in my life had always been just a little bit uncomfortable. I always knew that I'd gotten them off the street like that. Now, you know, it's, I felt so happy to realize, you know, that, that my consciousness... I, I felt ashamed that I'd picked them up in the first place and that it took me 20 years to realize I should give them back. I had to just give them back to goodwill. There was nothing else I could do with them at that point. But that's what happens to us. We get into a vibration where it's not a discipline anymore. It's just simply, there's no way we can't do it. And w- once you even feel that in the slightest position at all, then you begin to realize what, what, is, what is the limit of this? How high can I go? That's, that's always the question. How high could I go on this? I remember um, many years ago when Ananda first started publishing the little Secrets of Happiness, Secrets of Meditation books. At that time, believe it or not, we were the only people in the, quote, New Age market that was publishing little books of aphorisms like that. It was, it was an idea that we had first. Now there's zillions of them. It seems so obvious, but we were the first ones in that field to start it. And for a while, it was a huge moneymaker for Ananda. It was really, really helping us a lot. And Swamiji wrote more, more of those books so that we could sell them. And right at the height of that, um, our, our salesman, Danny, went to the uh, American Booksellers Association. And we were, we were hot stuff with these little books because they were also a gift item. So it was a crossover between the book and the gift market. And what was then Price Club, which is what you would think of as Costco now. I don't know where, what the you know, provenance of the whole thing is, but that's what it was. Price Club wanted to buy some of those books. You know, huge order, gigantic amount of money, way beyond anything we had. But they demanded an exclusive. And we had one particular distributor who was also, who had been been with us for a long time and we'd really become friends. And, you know, the sale of this book through their company was really helping their company. But we would have had to just cut them off. And so our salesman was, you know, he didn't didn't quite know what to do because heaven, we certainly wanted and it would help Master's work. There were so many different things. So he started asking different people in the business what he should do. Every single person he asked, as soon as he laid the situation, they said, how much money would you make? And after the second or third person asked him that, Danny realized that they were asking, well, if there's enough money involved, then you should sell the other people out. And and all of a sudden he realized, we just can't do it because there's a principle involved. And if I'm not going to do it for $1,000, why would I do it for $50,000? If I'm not going to do it for 50000 why would I do it for a million? And it's actually, whenever you're in a situation with money, 
where you don't quite know, it's a very good question to ask yourself. If the amounts were smaller, how would I behave? If it's, if it's that kind of a moral dilemma, it's a very important question. And I mean, Danny, when he came back to Swami, Swami said, of course, no, no, no question. We can't sell our friends out just because the price is high. Because that company had become to rely on our product too. And if we took it away from them, what would happen to them? You know, and as Swami always says, where there's victory, where there's dharma, there's victory. But that's a kshatriya mind. The Vaishya wouldn't even think of it. He would just say, whoa, I got a better offer. By all means, I'll take it. Goodbye to you. And it wouldn't cross his mind that there was any principle involved. Because he doesn't think like that. Shudra the same way, just wouldn't even know. If I can get it, why wouldn't I get it? Okay, so let me go on with this section. Society, even in those days, was not so simply stratified as to contain only peasants, merchants, soldiers, and priests. This is Master talking. These were symbolic designations of the stages of spiritual refinement. They were not intended as social categories, and they were not intended to be hereditary. Things changed as the yugas, the cycles of time, descended toward mental darkness. People in the higher caste, I love this part of it. This is how Master says it devolved. devolved. People in the higher caste wanted to make sure their children were accepted as members of their own caste. Thus, ego identification caused them to freeze the ancient classifications into what is called the caste system. So if you were born into it, you got to stay there. It didn't mean you didn't necessarily have the consciousness of a Brahmin, but you were born into the Brahmin caste, you got to be one. So then all of a sudden you have Shudras as Brahmins and Vaishas as Shudras, and it's just the whole thing is a mess. Okay. Such was not the original intention. In obvious fact, however, the offspring of a Brahmin may be a sudra by nature, and a peasant sometimes is a real saint. So what, what the value of this, the caste system is, and I found it to be one of the most interesting and useful teachings when you understand it in this way, is that you can begin to understand in yourself sometimes which way is forward. And it, it's also a tremendous help in working with people because you can begin to understand what motivates them? That there, a further expansion on this, which isn't in this here, but I'll, I'll just mention it because Swamiji talks about it elsewhere. Um, he talks about the caste not only in terms of the, what Master says there, but also in what motivates them to action, how they try to avoid pain, and what they consider to be happiness producing. So the Shudra is, is fundamentally believes that the greatest happiness comes from putting out the least effort. <laughs> and the way they try to find happiness is by dulling their consciousness. So a shudra will drink, watch television, overeat sugar, you know, just do things that just dull his consciousness because the less energy and the less awareness he has to put out, the happier he feels. And the only thing that motivates a shudra is threat of punishment. You know, and that's why when you're dealing, when you see people dealing with shudras, it's, it seems sometimes it seems kind of, kind of brutal because they have to be motivated. You have to threaten them. You have to push them. I'm not really saying that the whip is justified, but that's the basic impulse. If you don't force them to work, they won't work. 
if you don't, if there's, if the jeopardy of not working isn't tremendous, then they won't work. The peanut seller just sits there and is apparently not bored, you know? <laughs> Nothing's threatening him, so he's not going to do any more than just show up and wait on his peanut stand and make the peanuts. And then just go back into, back into his body, just into the sort of dull state. The Vaisha is motivated by the idea that I will get something from it, by, by personal gain and personal satisfaction. And his, his sense of, um, let's see, let me see if I can see this clearly. His, his happiness, and, I, and I, I, don't, I didn't review this, so I can't quite say it exactly, but the Vaisha likes, he, the, the Vaisha gets his happiness from the environment being the way he wants it to be. You know, he wants to control his environment. He wants the world to, re, to behave the way he wants it to behave. And, and, and I'm not saying this, unfortunately, I can't quite get this one exactly right, but the quality of the Vaisha is that you have to be the way, I, the way I, I know what it is, the way I alleviate my own suffering is, because I, is by getting you to change. The Vaisha is controlling his environment. Now, oddly enough, a great deal of social conscious action actually comes out of the Vaisha level. You know, I don't like what you're doing. It makes me uneasy. You have to change. So, so a lot of times people who have a good cause actually go after people trying to make them be different, which puts them in a, a kind of confrontational role that is often contradicts the theory of what they're trying to do. But it's because the motivation for that is, is that, if, that, the, that in order to alleviate my suffering, you have to behave the way I want you to behave. And the Vaisha has lots of energy to try to make that happen. Um, the Kshatriya, and, and as he's motivated by personal gain, and so a, a Kshatriya can be very honorable. But if, you know, I'll give you a good deal if you give me the right amount of money. And he's not really trying to take you. It can be a very honorable Vaisha, but it's always what's in it for me and I want to make a deal if it's fair. And as devotees, one of the things that we have to work our way through is that a lot of times devotees get into the thought form, I do enough kriyas, I pray, I'm good enough, you'll do it my way. You know, God, you'll do it my way. And I, I saw some, you know, appeal for prayers from, uh, you know, some family where the father was dying and the, the boy, who was like 10, was trying to motivate everybody to pray so God would give a miracle. And oh my God, my heart broke for that boy. Because bad enough that his father is probably going to die. But if he's trying to make a deal with God, we're going to pray enough. I mean, what happens when the, boy, when the man dies? Which in the context seemed almost inevitably he would. He's trying to make a deal with God. He's being a Vaisha with God. And a lot of times in our lives, we don't necessarily think that, but we, we don't necessarily realize it until we stop and think. You know, why are you treating me this way? And, and that's the fine line about certain kinds of prayers when, you're, when it's a Vaisha prayer, when it's a prayer that I've done this and then you'll do this. The Kshatriya, of course, is, is his happiness comes from, from living according to his ideals. And, and that's, that's where it comes from. So even a prayer demand offered by a Vaisha, by a Kshatriya, is according to the principle. It's like, this is the right thing and this is what we want it to happen. It's not about what I get from it. It's that this is the right thing. And the Kshatriya is motivated by 
the idea of living up to his ideals. He's not motivated by what he gets from it. He's motivated by living up to his ideals. If meditation is right, if, if this is what appropriate living is, then I do it. I don't do it because I get anything from it. I simply do it because it's right. And when I do it right, that's where my happiness comes from. I'm living in harmony with my highest ideals. And that's the kind of devotee we need to become before we become a Brahmin where, the, where no self-discipline and sacrifice is required, where we simply do it because it's right. Not because we hope that if we live properly, we'll get a bigger house in heaven or more success or relationships that we want or nothing bad will happen to my children. It's just, it, it, it's, and so you can measure yourself. You can often see, you know, what's wrong with my thinking? I mean, so was that someone was talking about a woman who was sick in the hospital and she had a friend who was really a truth teller. And the woman in the hospital was, this was somebody who was talking about their friends. The woman in the hospital was lamenting, why me? Why did this happen to me? And her friend said, why not you? <laughs> it was just like, why not? Why this, why this Vaisha ideal that I should get what I want, that the, I should control the world? And this is why a lot of times people who are very socially active, when they begin to get on the spiritual path, they lose interest in all of that. And that, that feels like a betrayal to those who are still in the Vaisha reality where I need to make the world a certain way in order to feel safe. And the Kshatriya just wants to make his inner world correct. And it's, it's a clash of values they can't understand. You know, which is why when I see all these politicians and they're offering all these different solutions and everybody has the right one and this one is terrible and this one is right. Even when they're saying, you know, it's for the, it's for the greater good, I, this is what I want. Um, nonetheless, they're all just trying to make the world a certain way. And it's not going to happen as far as I'm concerned. And so let's make the inner world a certain way. And that's the only way we're ever going to influence it. You know, I remember this was, uh, this was about Findhorn community, actually, um, where some of our people just went. And I'll just tell this story from 30 years ago. I was part of a communities conference. It was somewhere up in Oregon. And Peter Caddy, who was the founder of Findhorn, was still living then and still living at Findhorn. Eventually, before he died, he actually, I don't know whether he retired or was thrown out, but he was a very, very strong leader, and they got tired of him. And uh, he was a very, um, I think, domineering leader is the right word, because Swami Kriyananda was a very strong leader, but Peter was, was, a, was more dictatorial, so I've been told. But he was a good man, and he was fun. So anyway, I'm at this conference in Oregon, and Peter was there. I, I, Swami didn't come. I was representing Ananda. I brought slides. I'd been, by this time at least, I'd been 10 or 15 years in the community. And we had a lot going. We had a lot more going than almost anyone, except for Findhorn and a few others. And I could not get anybody to pay any attention to me. And I am, you know, I'm not... Um, I'm entertaining. It's not like I was obnoxious. I'm entertaining. The slides were good. You know, I can kind of talk my way into almost anything. I just couldn't get any traction. Nobody cared. And yet, there were, that, you know, like 50 people would come, literally, to see these, a couple of people showing us pictures of land they hoped to buy. And if they were able to buy it, they hoped to make a community. And, you know, I have a whole slide tray of this, like, fantastic thing that's going on. Nobody cared. And uh, 
I finally I was talking to Peter and I said, you know, everybody's interested in you and nobody's interested in us. How come? And Peter, with very astutely, just said quite simply, he said, at Findhorn we promise people they can have heaven on earth. He said, at Ananda you tell people they have to leave earth to have heaven. He said, nobody wants that. <laughs> and it was just, yeah, that was exactly the truth. And, and, you know, it's not like it's a bad thing to say, let's make an ideal society. You know, let's live according to all the obvious ways to take care of each other. And Findhorn is, I believe, I've never even been there, but I believe it's a beautiful place with a lot of harmony and heart. And it's a very good example. And so is Ananda, but from a very different, very different level. You know, Swamiji himself said, Community is an incidental byproduct. He said, I'm not really committed to communities. I'm committed to God realization. And he said, in communities that support God realization are, are a great aid. And that's why Master wanted them. It wasn't to create heaven on earth, but because it's an ideal lifestyle for self-realization, which is what we've all found. Meaningful work, meaningful friendships, um, you can create better environments if you work together. I mean, there's all kinds of things. But never the promise that in the end we'll be able to make it just what we want. You know, it's just, it's that we all search for God and then we become in tune with principle. And when we become in tune with principle, then life finally begins to flow. So, all right, let's take a break. During the break, we were really just sort of carrying on the conversation about the Shudras and the Vaishyas. I did remember what I couldn't remember, which is the, uh, the Shudra tries to find happiness by dulling his awareness and escape suffering, find happiness. The Vaishya tries to uh, make himself feel good by controlling his environment, by just making his environment what he wants it to be. The Shudra just wants to be dull, doesn't want to experience. The Vaishya is willing to put out energy but if he can get the world to behave the way he wants it to, that makes him feel good. The Kshatriya recognizes that happiness comes from controlling yourself. And the Brahmin doesn't have to do anything because he's just in tune with God. But the, the, so that's why, that's why that social activism begins to wane when you become a Kshatriya because instead of trying to make the world be in a certain way that makes you feel good, then you just try to make yourself what your what your ideal is and recognize that that's how you can influence it it's a it's an ir, ir, un, unbridgeable gap until you're there you ju- you just don't understand it we were also talking about the fact that america as a country you know does not have a large shudra population when you go i've i've never been to china or africa but i've been to india i started going to india in 1987 india itself is really shifting 86 1986, you're right. 1986. And I realized when I was there that there's, there was a huge Shudra population there. And, and because there were opportunities for, for living through that level of consciousness provided by that country that were simply not provided by the U.S. And when, when we're in the astral world, all souls in the astral world, you, you look at, at planets, Master said this is not the only planet, but let's just say planet Earth, and you have a certain vibration, a person has a certain vibration, and they have a certain need for a certain context 
in which they can progress. And this is this exactly describes the progression. If they're pre, if they're presently primary vibing as a shudra, they need to be able to be someplace where they can live that, and then hopefully gradually move up to the vaisha level. So it doesn't do to come into industrialized America if you really have a shudra, the right that kind of shudra. So you find an environment on the on a planet or this planet that matches your vibe and that's how you're born there and then you're born specifically into certain families for certain reasons and it's it's not as if the country actually I mean it's not the people that make the country it's like the vibration is there so people who are in tune with that vibration come into that vibration that's why Germans are always Germans and French are always French except for people who sort of stand out of it but the, but Germany is a certain way of being that souls may need so they'll be born German or they'll be born Mexican or they'll be born French or they'll be born American and right now what's just for fun what's happening is there's a lot of East Indian East Indian inclined souls being born in the West especially in America and there's a lot of very Western business types being born in India one of my favorites was in, uh, in, in the city of Varanasi, we had a tour guide for 20 years, um, every year, every other, about 12 times over 20 years. I was part of a group, and we would lead these pilgrimage tours of Americans, and we would take the same route every time, and we really got to know these people. In Varanasi, we had a guide. His name was Ram. He, he was a very traditional uh, Hindu. Uh, I don't know what his caste was, but he was very traditional in his values. He was a very nice man and he loved his city and he was a very good tour guide. And over the years we got to know him. We went to visit his, we met his wife, we met his family. He had five daughters and one son. And the the son was the last child. And all five of the daughters, and the the mother was very traditional, Ram was very traditional. All five of the daughters were very traditional in every way. And the son was like a cuckoo egg, you know. As I understand it, the cuckoo just leaves his egg in somebody else's nest and then lets that bird raise it. And I remember a picture I saw in a nature movie, and I don't know if it was a cuckoo bird or what it was, but you have like four blind fledglings, you know, how birds are so ugly when they're born with no feathers, four of these in a nest. Three of them look like each other and they're little tiny. The fourth one is like four times as big and they're all blind and the big one is pushing all the other. He's just ferreting around in that nest, throwing all the others off the edge. Now, I don't know if he was the cuckoo egg or not, but he certainly looked like my idea of what it would be. So this fourth, this sixth child, the son, he was a cuckoo egg. He was like, you know, first of all, he was a head and a half taller than everybody in his family. He looked totally like he was from New York. He did not look like he had ever touched the soil of India. And immediately, he went to work for a cell phone company. You know, it's just like, it was just, it was just like, he was totally in tune with a different world. Where did he come from? But it was just, what's, it's part of the confusion of the planet now, is that God is mixing it all up. Because, you know, it, it's just, everything is so different when you start looking at it from the cosmic perspective. We are shifting from Kali Yuga into Dwapara Yuga. Kali Yuga is the age of matter. The characteristic of matter 
is everything is separate. You know, these are my keys. This is my book. You know, I can't, I can't make them blend. Even though they're all energy and they're just vibration, why won't they go together? Because in the material world, this doesn't happen. They just, you know, they stay separate. They vibrate differently. In Kali Yuga, which is the age of matter, separation is the definition. So we all speak different languages. We have different cultures. You know, the the brown people stay with the brown people. The red people stay with the red people. The yellow people stay with the yellow people. And by God, the white people stay with the white people. And then we even announce that that's the way God wants it. And it's a sin against God to change it. Because, because how can I ever get my keys and my book together? They obviously belong separately. And so everything is about that. And so you end up with, with all these different cultures, all these different you know, societies, all these different languages, all these different art forms. And then you start into Dwapara Yuga. And in the ancient traditions, with when you have the Yuga system going cyclical, this is in that marvelous book by... Joseph Selby and David Steinmetz about the yugas. All of the traditions go back. It was like with, like it was a one world. It, it, the, there was a world culture. And you go back and, and all the different separate cultures all have these shared myths and these shared stories. And how did that happen if they're all separate? Well, the explanation from the yugas is that they weren't separate. They were unified but then Kali Yuga descended, just as he's talking here. And the caste system, which was fluid and meant to help you rise, becomes rigid and helps to keep you separate. So we go through the nadir of Kali Yuga at 500 AD. We start chugging up the other side. At, 19, in, in, at 1900, Dwapar Yuga proper begins, and the whole society begins to change. In the meantime, the English have gone all over the world and brought this one culture to lots of places and their language. You know, everything is a mixed bag. You can criticize the colonialism of them, but they brought English all around the world. And they also brought this one culture. So that's the beginning. That was the beginning of beginning to make the world the same. So now what's happening, all these individual cultures are being eliminated. You used to travel and everything was different. I went, I, speaking of India, in 1986 when I went there, it was still closed to foreign corporations because Gandhi was so, the whole country was so sick of the British imposition of, of their culture. They made Hindi their national language and they just pushed all of that away and Gandhi was determined that India would be India like this. Master said it was a grave mistake to make Hindi the national language because English unifies India with the world. And in fact, English is really the national language of India, which is a good thing because it unites them with the world. But when I went in 86, India was closed to foreign corporations. And like the next year or the year after, it was very right in that period of time, it, it, the, the, the forces of world unity in India persuaded the country to open to the world, really. Our, our guide told us that Pepsi-Cola came into um, India and managed to arrange to launch their product at the Taj Mahal, <laughs> which you can, you can imagine how much happened. So 
when, whenever this, that shift was uh, between our first and second or second and third trip, we arrived back in Varanasi and the little boats, the beautiful little boats that took us out of the Ganges, several of them now have ads for Coca-Cola painted on the side. <laughs> and it was just so vivid. Oh my, look at this. Look at what's happening here. But as a result of all of that, if you travel now, when I was staying in, in, in Venice, I believe it was Venice, way in the deep in the old part of the city of Venice, one of the ways that we could find our hotel was that you turned right at the Burger King. I mean, just, you know, way deep in this old Italian building, you go inside and there's a Burger King. I remember when McDonald's opened in Rome. It was a really big deal. Now there's a McDonald's in Rome. Now, part of you just thinks, oh, Lord, spare us. But the other part of what you're seeing is that we are becoming one culture. And now you, you go, can literally go all over the world. You go all over the world in your jeans and your sweatshirt and your little hoodie. And you look like everybody else, everybody else in the country. Any country. You just go in your jeans and your hoodie and you look just like everyone else. I mean, that wasn't true before. And now here's the last native speaker of this language and the last one of this language. And, and everybody's very distressed. And it's understandable but from the other perspective, what's happening is all those little pockets are, that's a Kali Yuga world. And, and the transition looks like more is lost than is gained. I remember being in some place, probably Central America, and, and realizing that just the absolute worst of American culture has been, has been exported all around the world. Just the worst. But it is becoming a unified culture. And when the whole vibration raises and, and a better vibration is exported, the channels are open. And you can walk around much of the world now speaking English. I, I only speak English and I've traveled a lot. And even just you know, over the 30 years of my experience traveling, usually you can go to any part of the world and just start speaking English and somebody will answer you. And now it's so common. And, you know, you can criticize why should it be English, but it is, because that's what's happened. And interestingly, Master said that India and America are going to lead the world, and those are two major English-speaking countries. But it is the language of commerce. And, you know, and um, one of our friends who runs a, a school for children in Rishikesh, and she has, runs a school, the Mother Miracle School, and she runs the school for underprivileged children. Just by teaching those children from the slum English completely changes their life because now they have access to the whole world. Whereas if they only grew up speaking their, their dialect, whatever it is there, and did not get educated in English, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the line in the sand. And now if we just if we look at it in a positive way we can see where it's going. So anyway all of that is is part of the uh, just what's happening. And if if the planet elevates then you don't have any you don't have this planet becomes uncongenial for certain kinds of consciousness and then it simply incarnates on a planet that's doing something else. And right now in this difficult transition we're hosting a huge spectrum of consciousness because I, I, had re- I read this years ago in a book of 
about the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, who was a, a German mystic from a couple of hundred years ago, I think. I think maybe the 1800s, but I'm not certain. And she had a vision of, of essentially this period of time, the 21st century, where we are now, in which the demons would be let out of hell for a period of years. Yeah, it was really like, I mean, I don't know what she was really seeing. I don't know how, you know, what, 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 how, how it was translated into, into words. But you see, this society, the remnants of Kali Yuga need to be pulled down. The, the, the field needs to be cleared so that Dwapara Yuga can rise. And so what you're seeing is that the society is being torn to pieces. And even people whose values you might think are a little better, they're all just tearing each other to pieces. It's, it's what you see. I mean, the uh, American politics, maybe somebody can defend it. And I do think, just Swami said, you know, just because everyone manifests evil doesn't mean that evil is equally manifested in everyone. <laughs> Meaning that there, I think there are shades of distinction. But nonetheless... It's all a Vaisha point of view, which is I'm going to control the world in my way and make it what I want. No, I'm going to control it my way and make it what I want. So suddenly you see how the caste system helps. You know, the, the principle might, you might like this principle a little better. We need to take care of people, but still the way it's expressed is I'm going to control the world and make it my way. More and more laws, more and more laws. This is what I was talking about, I guess, on Sunday when Dwapara energy begins to come in, but Kali Yuga is still in charge. So we have all this Dwapara Yuga energy, and so people are using it to make more and more Kali regulations. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws, and, and it just everything is more and bigger, but not enlightened. It's just more of the same. And that's what we're seeing in the political world. It's not Kshatri. It's not, with very few exceptions... It's not really discipline, self-sacrifice. It's just my demanding that you do it my way. No, we're going to demand that you do it your way. It's not going to take us anywhere in the end because it's just the same stuff. We have to shift into a Brahmin Kshatriya point of view before. And, and the other problem that happens at a time like this is that it's also mixed up. You know, you have Shudras and Vaishyas being trying to be kings, and they can't be kings because they're terrible. And you have, you have school, you have schools that are just designed for shudras and vaishyas. And so, if you have kshatriya children, it's like, why? Why would I do that? You know, it's just not interesting to me. In our schools, one of the things that Nitai did very extremely well is he would he would find out what kind of a child do we have, and then he would motivate the child according to what. Um, would motivate them. You know, for one child, he would say, if you don't clean up your desk, you can't go out to recess. It's like they would move if they might be punished. To another, he would say, you know, if you clean up your desk, you know, then I'll give you an extra 10 minutes of recess. More for me, I'll put out energy. To another child, he would say, if you clean up the desk, the whole room will feel better and everyone will be happier. And that child would be insulted if you said, if you don't clean up your desk, you're going to lose your recess. Why would you treat me like that? So refined children in our Shudra Vaishya system just don't even know what's going on. They, they, they're just completely bewildered. Why am I be tr- being treated like this? It was very funny. 
Swamiji was taking some photographs when, at a time when Swami was taking a lot of photographs. He wanted to get a photograph of this particular family at Ananda. They had three children, two daughters, maybe the oldest was eight, maybe like eight, six, and then the boy was probably four about that time. And they were very photogenic and he wanted to do a portrait of them. And so all the girls, of course, the two girls were all dressed up and the parents were all ready. The little boy crawled under his bed and wouldn't come out. (laughs) And, you know, the mother was trying everything to get him out and he wouldn't come out. And Swami leaned over and he said, he got on the floor and he looked in there and he said, if you let me take your picture, I have a bar of Swiss chocolate and I'll give it to you. (laughs) And the boy came running out. And, And the mother was smart enough to realize that he was just a Vaisha child. And then she started paying him to be good. <laughs> and, and, you know, then he, got, he started being really, really good. And he started behaving really, really well because he was a Vaisha. It would move him. And then gradually he began to enjoy being good. But, you know, if she just tried to get him to be good without... He's just like, why should I? It just didn't make any sense to him. So when you're working with anyone, you have to stop and ask... What's important to them? Not what's important to me, but what's important to them. It's so blatant with children. But it's really true with everyone. People have different, they live at different castes. And sometimes you ask yourself. You know, sometimes I motivate myself with punishment. If you don't get this done, you know, tomorrow afternoon when your friends come to visit, you're going to have to be upstairs working. You're not going to be able to play. (laughs) And so, okay, I have to do this because otherwise I'll be punished by my own stupidity. You know, if I do get this done, whatever, you can think about it. You play it out. It's very, very, very useful. I really find it very so. Any comments or questions on any of that? It's so fun. All right. (laughs) I'm going to read one more, number 390. Complete change of pace. If you eat your dinner and then run, how will you expect to enjoy what you've eaten? Certainly your enjoyment will increase if you rest a little afterward. The same is true for your practice of Kriya Yoga. Don't jump up the moment you've done your Kriyas. Sit still a while. Enjoy the inner peace. That is how intuition is developed. Prolong and deepen as much as possible. Possible the peaceful after-effects of practicing the techniques. In other places, Master says this too, that intuition is developed in the calm, quiet space of meditation after the techniques. It's, I, it's an interesting um, correlation that he's made. You know, I guess just once all... Um, it, would, it would, in a sense, it would be like, how do you become a Brahmin now that I think about it? It's especially when you're doing kriyas and you're, you're moving the energy up and down the spine and you're, you're using the breath in such a conscious way and you're drawing all that restlessness into a focus and bringing it to a, a point of, of uh, well, a point of focus, a concentrate point, concentrated point at the spiritual eye in the light, then that would be the time when your vibration would match your superconscious. And so that would be a time when energy could just flow into you. And you know, whenever we have one experience of this, then we always have a better idea of what we're looking for. We begin to to know what it looks like and to be able to tell more readily. You know, 
a few experiences of false intuition begin to teach us what real intuition is like. So mostly we learn, um, we learn both by success and by failure. But the other part of it is, Master is really trying to explain to us, you know, that the techniques alone are, is not the fulfillment of meditation. That we really have to understand that it brings us to a certain point and the capacity to, um, to surrender to that reality, to, to offer ourselves into that reality and to stay in it is really where we're trying to go. Number 391, Master says, You must be very joyous and happy, for this is God's dream. The little man and the big man are only projections of the dreamer's consciousness. Take everything as it comes and tell yourself that it is all coming from God. What comes of itself, let it come. Even when you feel you have to try to correct a wrong, try first to feel his inner guidance. Then, when you act, do so on his behalf and never with ego-inspired indignation. Master, you know, covers it all here because when we start saying everything comes from God, sometimes that inspires people. Sometimes people interpret that to mean they should be passive. And it's very important then that you look at the example of Master and of Swamiji where, the, where passivity is the last thing that you see in them. They were always forcefully moving with a, 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 an intention to manifest a certain reality. Swami was unrelenting in his creative determination. You know, really, literally, I do not know that he ever uh, passed an entire day without doing something productive and creative. He certainly had days where he was less directed, but I, I don't know if he ever passed an entire day. Maybe when he was near death in the hospital. But sometimes when he was near death in the hospital, he was still doing something one way or another. So, but, but what he says is, even when you feel you have to try to correct a wrong or to manifest a good would be the same way, try first to feel his inner guidance. Then when you act, do so on his behalf and never with ego-inspired indignation. I read uh, uh, something from Ananda Ma, where she had been talking also about what comes of itself, let it come. And then one of her disciples said something like, but is that true even of, of wrong things, of, ego, of evil things? You just you know, sort of let them come? And now I can't get the exact words right, but Ma's answer was essentially, let them try. <laughs> you know, meaning that it doesn't mean that you become a doormat, but that you, you remain centered in God. You don't allow ego indignation to take you over. So it's a, it's a very subtle balancing point that's very important. Otherwise, you miss the boat in a different way. And, and that, that comes down to tamas, rajas, sattvic energy. Tamasic energy is just downward pulling. It, it's taking you to being a shudra. And so you have to be a kshatriya. You have to, a kshatriya acts and sacrifices and disciplines to make it happen. I mean, but he acts in attunement with the guidance from God, not like the Vaishya with his ego will trying to make it be a certain way. And that's what Master's trying to say. All right. 
I think that'll cover it for this evening. We read 389 through 391. 